Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat up old running shoes. Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast with me, George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, joined in the studio today by Jack, Deputy Editor on Bike Radar, and Liam, road and gravel presenter over on our YouTube channel. Jack, I'll start with you. We're locked in the basement of our office, but the sun is shining on a beautiful spring morning. <laughs> so let's start with your favourite subject, and that is the British weather. Yeah, it's been uh, absolutely miserable. And as I keep telling people, there is nothing more boring than moaning about the weather, but the weather itself has been even more boring this spring. Uh, and I enjoyed my first legs out, wonderful post-ride evening spin yesterday. It was delightful. I was going to ask if you've been doing much riding. I know you're off on a lovely tour of your native Scotland in a few weeks. I am. I'm going to be off on a big uh, thousand-ish kilometre tandem tour with my partner to celebrate her finishing her postgrad, uh, and we'll be celebrating by sitting, dossing, and farting in a tent for two weeks. I cannot <laughs> wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited. <laughs> Rather you than me, Jack. Yeah. Rather you than me, but no, it sounds lovely. Uh, and Liam, I'll turn to you. How are you this morning? I'm very good because legs out means that no one can complain about my uh, penchants for wearing my leg warmers under my socks. So I'm sure that I'm sure if you hate that, please comment below. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll maybe we'll run a podcast in the future in cycling's greatest controversies. Mm. Uh, I know you were out on Salisbury Plain yesterday. Actually, last time we recorded the podcast last week, you were also out on Salisbury Plain on the previous day. For the same video project, so tease our listeners with the video that you are working on at the moment. We're finding out which uh, which tire pressure 
lower or higher is uh, is faster and whether wider tyres are all that they've cracked up to be. So I won't say anything about the results because I have the results. I've got the hard, cold data um, and it's very, very interesting. But I would like to say Salisbury Plain in the sun is a much nicer place to be than when it's raining sideways. So you're doing that testing on a Lauf Segler gravel bike. So it's a 40mm set of tyres and a 50mm set of tyres, is that right? That is indeed correct. And obviously it's got the um, fork up front, which offers 20 millimetres of travel, I believe. Mm, I'm shrugging as you say that. I have no mm, idea. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's roughly that. Plenty of squish then with that fork and a 50 mil tyre. So much squish. It was great. But is it faster? We'll find out in a couple of weeks. I'm sure we'll probably have that on the podcast when we release the video at the end of May, I think that is. End of May? End of April. Just uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. You'll find it. All the latest content's there. Let's get on with the podcast. We are leading today's pod off the news of a new Trekamonda ALR. It's a bike that got us talking in the office because it's a performance-focused aluminium road bike. And if I remember rightly, Liam, that was on your wish list when we ran a Road Tech Trends pod at the start of the year. Your wish has been granted. <laughs> Tell us about this bike. I, I, I love this bike on a number of levels. I've just seen a photo of it like two minutes before we started talking. Um, one, half the bike seems to be pink. Love that. Uh, two, it seems to have a relatively horizontal top tube. Love that. The seat stays do not enter the down tube, or sorry, the seat tube halfway down. That's fabulous. Um, yeah, and it's an aluminium bike, uh, what I assume is a relatively sensible price as well, uh, in, in terms of a performance bike. So I like what Trek's doing here. It's interesting because we've, I think between the three of us, always been a, a fan of good value, relatively good value, performance-focused aluminium bikes. And we're talking about the likes of the Trekamonda ALR, also the Cannondale CAD 13 and the whole CAD series over the years. The Specialized Alley, particularly the Specialized Alley Sprint, which was redesigned last year. So really interesting that Trek have redesigned or updated the Amonda ALR as the aluminium version of Trek's lightweight carbon race bike. So let's talk through some of the key features of this bike jacket launched only yesterday on, on Thursday. We'll then launch into a wider discussion as to why a bike like this, seemingly on the face of a, a, a bog standard aluminium <laughs> race bike up against a sea of carbon wizardry. Why is it this bike that's caught our eye uh, alongside some of its competitors in the market? Some really interesting talker points there as to why someone might choose an alloy bike over a carbon one. But let's start with the, the tube shaping on this. As Liam alluded to, it's fairly conventional looking, no drop seat stays, horizontal top tube, but there is some interesting stuff going on. Yes, definitely. If you're familiar with the carbon version of the Amonda, which launched in 2020, this is pretty much the same bike cast in alloy. Um, and the tube shapes themselves have taken on a very moderately aero profile in keeping with the uh, carbon Amonda. Now, obviously, this is an alloy bike, it's never going to be a super slippery Madone-like aero weapon, but it is, you know, a bike which has seen some slight nods towards aero integration. Um, and up front, a good talking point there, we're also seeing some internal cable routing as another nod to sort of aero performance there. But the actual tube shapes, they are fairly exotic for uh, an alloy bike. But overall, I'd say compared to the outgoing bike, it's just a bit of a cleaner looking thing overall. There's less of like a hump in the top tube. The back end in particular around the sort of seat stay, chain stay junction is very, very tidy. Very tasty looking bike. As you said, it does have integrated cable routing up front on the bike. It is a two-piece cockpit as far as I can see on, on the limited studio images that we have. 
but it's a move to internal cable routing all the same. Here's the killer question for you. Does internal cable routing have a place on an aluminium bike? Mm, yeah, I don't see why not, really. I think if it's done well, internal cable routing can be fine. And it's it's just so broadly where the industry has moved, it's hard to know whether like that's something that bike designers have been crying out for, or given that it's been so broadly accepted across all types of bikes, regardless of price, as we've talked about many, 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 many times on this podcast. I do wonder whether our sort of um, angst about it is perhaps slightly overplayed and the sort of everyday rider who perhaps isn't maintaining their own bike probably doesn't care and rather likes the way it looks where it is a bit tidier up front. So I would say for the type of people who may be interested in this bike, that it's I'm making too many broad assumptions here, but I, I don't think it's the end of the world, no. I think we often pitch or describe these aluminium race bikes as privateer race bikes, people mm-hmm. who want a, a fast bike that... Or she would never plan to crash it, that you can perhaps have a little tumble on and not worry about it snapping into. And also that it's not, relatively speaking, against some of its carbon fibre counterparts going to break the bank. And we'll come on to pricing shortly. Um, but yeah, I think it looks really clean. Yeah. And Trek sort of in like the way Trek does internal routing with its two piece cockpits is pretty inoffensive in the grand scheme of things. Um, the cable routing goes through the handlebars, exits just next to the clamping area, and then goes underneath the stem using a sort of like clip, essentially, that guides it in, and then through the top cap of the headset and through into the into the head tube, rather. It's, it's nothing nuts, put it that way. Kind of what's going on internally inside the frame, we don't have any details on that. I don't know whether it's fully guided, for example, or whether it's just running through foam tubes or nothing at all. Um, so it could be hiding all manner of horrors internally in the down tube, but I think it's unlikely, to be honest. I think it would be a fairly nice enough solution. We'll find out. I think we've got one of these bikes coming to us in the next couple of days, so we'll look as far as we can. We won't go as far as sawing it in half, but we'll certainly <laughs> see where those cables go. Well, no, we'll get Will to take it apart. And, you know, we'll we'll save a few hours and mm-hmm. get him to do it. Will, our workshop manager, who gets all, all of the fun jobs when bike ar- bikes arrive in, in the workshop. Uh, Leo, let's turn to you. Jack's right in saying that the the lines are certainly a lot cleaner on this bike, but there's also been a change in terms of the geometry. So it's moved from Trex H2 fit to H1.5. And that's a trend that we've seen across a few of Trex performance-focused bikes with the H1.5 fit. What do we need to know there? Um, H1.5, in layman's terms, is a bit more aggressive. So it's longer, it's lower than the Domane, which uses a H2 fit. I think this is a really good thing for a race bike. I like it because it adds a little bit of definition into uh, what you're getting from a road race bike, whereas the last few years have seen a bit of a muddying of the waters. This is quite nice. Um, I would be buying this if I was quite a flexible person. Um, H1.5 is, you know, it's, it's down there at the front end. If you're not so flexible, then this may not be the bike for you. Um, I always, when I was selling bikes in a bike shop, I always tended to say, well, you know, if you if you can get on it with no spacers involved, then it's probably the right frame for you. If not, we should maybe look at something else. But in, in terms of the geometry, it looks like a race bike, and that's quite nice. Indeed it does. And, and actually, just to move on to another trend that we've seen across the industry on race-focused bikes and, and one that actually Trek have been not necessarily leading, but one that we've seen across a few of their performance-minded bikes over the last few years, and that is a move to a threaded bottom bracket, the T47 
bottom bracket standard in particular. And that continues now with the Amanda ALR. And in Trek's words, say goodbye to plastic cups and creeks. Hallelujah. Any thoughts there, Jack? The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, uh, yeah, Trek is helpfully sort of glossing over the fact that they sort of, not with uh, their alloy bikes, but they've binned off perhaps one of the most troublesome press fit standards here. Trek were renowned for their BB90 standard, which uh, wasn't great. Having worked in a Trek dealer, it, it was a very elegant solution, but not the best one. So with the previous Amanda ALR, it used a BB90 bottom bracket shelf, if I remember correctly, which, yeah, has a plastic sort of pressed in cup. One of the better press fit solutions out there, and generally speaking, one of the more reliable ones. But again, you know, threaded bottom brackets are a crowd pleaser. It's not really a surprise to see Trek move to this here, given that has happened already with all of their other bikes. So, yeah, no surprise. The T40 stand, T47 standard Trek uses is actually very slightly different to the standard standard. I think if I remember correctly, it's slightly narrower in terms of the shell width. But I think for the most part, you can use pretty much any T47 bottom bracket in there. And that's good as well because it means the bike will play nicely with 30 millimeter cranks or 30 millimeter spindle cranks, I should say, um, whereas the previous standard wasn't quite so optimized for larger spindles. Liam, you've got thoughts here too. Oh, my only advice, if you were looking at this bike or any other kind of metal bike with a threaded bottom bracket, the temptation is to think that the bearings are going to be lovely, smooth, quiet, and last forever. Just make sure that if you're buying a bike like this from new, you get the shop to do the facing and the chasing of the threads because the facing of the bottom bracket shell will just help so much in terms of bearing life. It'll be quiet um, and the chasing of the threads, if you're ever trying to get that bottom bracket out, it will help you in the long run. So just a a little tip there from someone that's uh, shredded their knuckles, punching bottom brackets and chain rings and god knows what else i just faced and chased the bottom bracket shell on my new bike the other day in the shed it's one of the most satisfying jobs going love it i was going to say liam that that's excellent advice but actually i've got no idea because i've got no idea what facing or chasing a a bottom (laughs) bracket is and that's 
That's why I'm merely the host and you two are the experts. You shave metal. And what is more satisfying than shaving metal? But get the bike shop to do it for yes. you. Yeah. yeah, it's an extremely expensive tool that you'll use approximately once a year if you build a bike every single year. Otherwise, you'll use it once in your life. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, and that's the value of local bike shops. Um, yeah, interesting that, and Trek aren't alone in doing this, but interesting that brands are now celebrating the move back to threaded bottom brackets as a thing, as a performance gain or a gain for the end user when for years and years it's been the opposite way and pushing people towards press fit. Plot twist, 10 years time we're going to be celebrating <laughs> the move back to rim brakes. Yay. Of course it is, and we'll be talking about it here on the Bike For the rest podcast. of time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. We're just briefly going to touch on, on value uh, because that will become one of our wider talking points. But in terms of pricing... There are two bikes in the Yamonda ALR range at launch. There's the Yamonda ALR 5 with Shimano 105 11-speed mechanical. That's £2,325. And we've got the Yamonda ALR 6, which is with Shimano 105 DI2 12-speed electronic group set, which is £3,150. So we'll come on to the wider value proposition, So shall we say, when, we, when we're talking about aluminium road bikes in, in a second. But Trek do describe this as their highest value road race bike in the lineup. Any thoughts on that, Jack, before we move on? I guess it depends how you define value. You know, if racing is really the most important thing to you, then you could argue that, I mean, I, I'd have to check, but I would say a lower-priced Madone, if you so happen to have deep pockets, would be better value if going fast for racing is your priority. But, like, on the face of it, for £2,300, like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's not absolutely bonkers money. You know, I you get nice enough alloy wheels. One of five R7000 is still a perfectly good group set. It's fine. You could probably get a bike for less, but you'll be coming from a brand that isn't Trek, and you generally speaking pay the Trek specialized giant tax with sort of big name brands. Yeah, you 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 can get carbon and this group set for less. So the Oro Gold STC 105 DI2 bike, which is so well named, is uh, a penny under three thousand um, pounds. That might be a bit. Uh, UK centric because um, I believe Oro are UK centric, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, bikes out there do exist with slightly better specs and maybe the allure of carbon fiber, if you so want it. But yeah, the big names generally attract a little bit of a premium. Mm. This this is the point in the market I think where aluminium and carbon starts to collide, and you do get that crossover with some of the, um, particularly the direct sales brands uh, and the bike shop brands like Trek. Um, we'll come on to value. Finally, uh, on the uh, the Amanda ALR specifically, RIP to rim brakes, Jack Luke. Yeah, I'm quite sad about this one. A couple of years ago, Matthew Loveridge, formerly of this parish, had a really cool Amanda ALR. It was like a lovely pearlescent purple thing. Um, it had direct mount rim brakes. And I think the Amanda ALR was the last of that sort of generation of high-end mainstream alloy bikes with rim brakes. I mean, you could say the same of carbon bikes, to be fair. Um, I mean, it's not exactly surprising. It's a dying breed very much so, as in rim brakes generally are a dying breed. But, you know, I still mourn the loss as a sort of uh, committed contrarian. <laughs> well, there you go. It was only a matter of time. I remember that bike that Matthew had. It was it was beautiful in terms of the finish and also just, yeah, really hit the mark as a lightweight, relatively good value alloy race bike got a lot of time for that very cool uh, i say that actually as, as an owner of a canyon ultimate al yeah. slx which has rim brakes and 
uh, was or is, I don't think it's in the, in the range anymore, Canyon's aluminium road bike. Uh, I think they've quietly discontinued that. I'd love to see them reinvigorate a, a, mm. a high-end alloy bike, um, but we'll see. So let's move on. Do check out the the news story on this bike on bikeradar.com. We'll put the link to that in the show notes if you want to take a closer look. But we're going to move now on to a wider discussion about why someone should consider an aluminium road bike in 2023 if they've got two to three thousand pounds burning a hole in their pocket or around two and a half to three and a half thousand dollars, let's say. And as I said before, we're talking about bikes like the Amanda ALR, the Specialized LA Sprint, the Cannondale CAD 13 which was launched in 2019, actually. So I think it's probably due an update either this year or next. There are other options out there, but those are the, the three big hitters when it comes to performance alloy. So let's go back to value, Jack, because uh, that is the the key point, as I say, when, when you're in this part of the market where you do start to see some of the more affordable carbon options. So what's there to consider if you're weighing up the two, the two choices and you've got that amount of money to spend? So generally speaking, an alloy um, road bike will have typically far better components for an equivalent price versus a carbon one. Um, you may, for example, if you send, spend like for like, you may tend to get slightly higher end wheels and tires, maybe nicer group set on an equivalent alloy bike. But generally, people will be shopping at a price point. You know, they've got £2,500 in their pocket. What are they going to buy? Well, let's look at Trek's range. In this case, as you mentioned, the R7000 mechanical equipped bike would set you back £2,325 with nice enough wheels and pretty decent finishing kit. Looking at the Carbon Amonda, which is the SL5, for the exact same spec, so the same wheels, same uh, group set as far as I'm aware, and same sort of finishing kit, you'd be spending £3,250, so just under £1,000 more for basically the same bike but cast in carbon. Um, you know, like for like in terms of performance, there's not going to be a lot between them. We will come on to that. But if it was me and I still happen to have that extra £1,000 lying around to kind of bring you up to the same price as the carbon bike, I would argue that the alloy bike with, say, your finishing kit sorted to fit you as required, some saucy wheels and nice tires, and change left over to do a grotty weekend of bike packing away on your nice new bike would be a much better way to spend the money. So it was a really interesting conversation when you or when we talk about value because it's it's so Mm. personal to the needs of the rider how much you want to spend how much you're willing to spend but when you do put these two bikes up against each other clearly on the more expensive bike the Amonda SL5 you're paying for the carbon frame set so if it was you Liam and, and you had two to three thousand pounds in your pocket would you be putting the money into the carbon frame set or would you be putting either the money into upgrades for your aluminium bike or treating yourself to that nice holiday. And you can go somewhere nicer. You can go to Mallorca. You don't have to go to the Grotty Hostel. <laughs> uh, the, the last thing I saw about Mallorca was that it was on the snow. So I'm going to go to Fuerteventura, uh, where there is guaranteed sunshine. Um, no, I would be I would be going for the alloy bike. Um, you're talking about very, very minor differences in terms of frame compliance, uh, ride quality between alloy and carbon. That becomes even closer when you come down to the kind of three grand pri uh, price point. So at this level, you're generally getting the lowest grade of carbon. More, uh, more and more resin is used, so it's a, it's a little bit more harsh um, or harsher. Is that, that's a bad term. Sorry, I'm getting frowned at. Um, <laughs> it's I, unfair, two editors in the room. I know. Uh, 
two two editors. Honestly, I need an editor name in my title. Um, Video presenter, editor in something. Yeah, chief. Why not? We'll make it up for next time. I I would be spending my money on tires because for me, the biggest performance change that you can make to your bike is a set of really high quality tires. Don't skimp on them. Maybe go tubeless if you want, um, but something with a nice high thread count um, and the alloy bike you'll get a lovely, lovely ride. I think one thing that always makes me laugh when we have these discussions, not wrongly, we have to justify our job somehow, but, you know, we're talking about £2,300, right? Yeah, I'd be upgrading that off the bat. Like, £2,300 is a lot of money for yeah. most people. And I think that, you know, if I was buying this bike, I'd be perfectly happy pretty much with that, provided it all fitted me. It, it just always makes me laugh. We, we live in our uh, our bubble bubble of cycling media life i have to say this is one of the benefits of going to a bike shop is that if you walked into the store and said i'd like that bike please they'd go yeah certainly probably wait a few months for it but in that time would sir or madam like to choose their preferred handlebar width stem length and they will change that for you and and sometimes as long as you're swapping like for like it should be at no cost so if you are thinking oh i'd like something you know custom to or as custom as possible to you go into a shop and actually buy a bike like this instead of going online absolutely it's good advice uh liam you also mentioned performance there and we're, we're, we're generalizing here i should say that we haven't uh, actually seen or ridden the monda alr um in the flesh yet um but you know in terms of the general theme between aluminium bikes and carbon bikes at a similar price point it's fair to say that, as Liam said, generally there isn't a huge amount of difference or certainly perceptible difference when it comes to performance, Jack. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I'd say that unless aero is your primary motive, you're very unlikely to lose out much with a premium alloy bike versus carbon. There will be a weight difference. I'm, I am totally making up the numbers here, but let's say it was a kilo, a kilogram between the two of them. Unless you are 100% dedicated as a hill climber, a kilo really matters not one jot when you're riding. Uh, riding. So in terms of performance, it's unlikely to be a significant difference. In terms of things like stiffness as well, that's much more intangible if you're comparing like for like with performance. A flexible bike might be good somewhere. A stiff bike might be good elsewhere. I, I wouldn't stress too much on that. So I'd say in term, unless you really, really want a slippery aero bike, there's not a lot between the two. It's definitely fair to say that aluminium bikes had a reputation for being quite harsh in the past, perhaps unfairly. And I, and I, I, would, I personally would argue unfairly these days, high-end aluminium, and, and we are talking about premium aluminium here, same with the CAD 13, the LA Sprint. Generally speaking, the brands know what they're doing now in terms of producing a frame that is stiff and it's relatively easy to make an alloy frame stiff but also one that's light and, and relatively comfortable, particularly with the bigger tyres that you can get into a bike like this, which we'll come on to. But yeah, I think that the old, the myth of the fill-in rattling alloy frames is largely a thing of the past. Absolutely. Um, I, I remember starting racing on an alloy rose and um, I was kind of, it's, it's all the money I had, I, you know, I was like 16, 17, whatever it was. And I was kind of getting ready for it to be quite harsh. And this is back in the days of 23 mil tyres. Who remembers those? Years ago. How old are you, Liam? Uh, <laughs> oh, at least 19 now. Um, it, yeah, it, they're just not. They're just not. They're perfectly stiff enough, unless you are a Tour de France sprinter. 
who is pumping out 1600 watts there's no there's no real flex in them you could definitely still buy an absolutely like gnarly stiff old gross alloy bike like the classic ribble 7005 like really good all-rounder winter bike i remember a time when they used to sell them for like 800 quid fully out the door like classic of the club run they are harsh bikes they ride really really stiff did you have a blue one i never had a blue one i've only ever played on them kind of nosing around outside the shop but they you know that was a properly gnarly bike and i think it was maybe in the early days of alloy bikes where the design goal for professional riders was to make something stiff you know comfort wasn't necessarily a concern um for various reasons i think that's probably where the perception of stiff, nasty alloy bikes came from. But again, it just isn't the case. And as we're going to come on to, because tyre clearance has increased so much, you can build almost as much comfort as you would ever realistically want on a road bike with a modern alloy bike. Yeah, as I say, we haven't we haven't ridden this bike, but I think we can put that myth to bed in terms of our experience on similar high-end aluminium bikes. And the key point there, tyres, as you said, Jack, so it's a maximum of 28C on this bike, I would caveat that by saying Trek are always very conservative compared to other brands uh, when it comes to maximum tyre width. You could probably get a 30C tyre in here even if Trek wouldn't officially recommend it. But 28 is standard. Um, I don't wish to uh, question my boss's uh, notes, but I'd be quite surprised if it was 28 max on the Trek Amanda. Just because like looking at the Damani, I remember... F- that's what, like 35 mil max? I think the Amanda Carbon's 32 max. So perhaps it is 28, but that does seem quite old school. But either way, 28 as standard kind of nods towards the fact this isn't a bike just designed solely for go-fast, stiff riding, whereas the Amanda Carbon, that was one of my criticisms criticisms I leveled at that bike, where 25s as stock struck me as a bit unusual, a bit odd. You're about to correct me. I'm about to turn my laptop around and I've highlighted the part in the yeah. model year 2023, oh, a Monda ALR FAQ. What is the maximum tyre size? It's 28C. Well, well, take it back. <laughs> I would stress the point, though, that, of course, you should abide by the maximum tyre clearance, as stated by the brand, but Trek is on the cautious side. We've seen that with a few bikes in recent <laughs> years. So um, as with any bike, there's probably room to go a little bit wider if you're um, first, if you want an extra comfort, and secondly, if you're perhaps taking this bike over to Flanders or Roubaix, or you just live somewhere like we do, where the roads are a little bit horrible. Substandard. They're terrible right now. It's I always forget that in March in the UK, it's like okay, so in Feb it's generally dry and very very cold, and then in March it rains. But it also is pothole season. Potholes just fall from the sky and land on the road. <laughs> I do not understand where they come from. I went on a ride uh, out your way, actually, Liam, on Sunday out to Salford uh, between Bristol and Bath. And I think we took in every pothole mm-hmm. on every lane between yeah. Bristol and Bath. It was, I just stopped calling them out in the group because just hold your handlebars, you're going to hit a pothole. Yeah. Get ready to swerve or hop. <laughs> it was also pretty wet on that ride. Uh, hopefully we've seen the back of that. And if I was on the Amanda ALR, I wouldn't be able to fit mudguards. And Jack, I can feel your eyes rolling behind the mic as we speak. Yes, I, I, I really took umbrage with this. The, the FEQ that you uh, quoted the correct tyre clearance from, George, made note of the fact it doesn't have mudguards, um, mudguard mounts. And Trek say this is no because they wanted to create a light, stiff and simple bike, which I am very upset about because I don't see how including four eyelets would make a bike not light, not stiff and not simple. It is just a massive oversight which reduces the versatility of the bike because I would argue a nice do-it-all 
alloy road bike with mudguard clearances and decent tire clearance would be the perfect all-season bike. Especially on, like, these days, on especially on alloy bikes, you put the eyelets down mm. at the dropouts. Like, what is that doing? It does nothing. It does. It does nothing to detract from the bike. But also, Trek uses those really cool banjo bolts on their Demanes to hide the mudguard mounts and give a really clean line. Like they could have incorporated something like this here. And Trek isn't alone in this uh, kind of mark, where the uh, sorry, the Cannondale CAD 13 also doesn't have mudguard mounts. And I understand that many people listening won't will simply have the choice not to ride in the rain. But as a committed mudguard diehard, I, I just winds me up more more than it ought to i would, I would agree with that and, and obviously we're talking as, as uk riders and i think we've seen something like double the average amount of rain in, yeah. in march as the last month and <laughs> been great fun we're sick and tired of having a wet backside um but yeah to me it makes complete sense like why why would you not put them on this bike and and for me you know i'm the kind of customer who would have roughly this amount of money to spend on my next bike and if i was choosing one bike that i wanted to ride year round then you know that potentially is you know a deal breaker in terms of the the decision um so yeah you know as i say on, on the face of it we haven't seen this bike but it would be nice to see mudguard mounts and perhaps a little bit more tire clearance mm. so you could have a 28 and a set of mudguards maybe you can but certainly not recommended i guess it is worth pointing out that you can still use clip-on mudguards but Oof. they will be <laughs> the temperature in the room just <laughs> fell um yeah they they Never the best, in my opinion. I, I've never actually ridden with clip-on mudguards, but back in my bike shop days, I fitted as fair for you, and that, <laughs> that was enough to put me off for life. They're just so rattly and annoying, and like they are, like the nice crud catcher ones are okay, but nah, not for me. I'm a full alloy bolt-on, leave them on all year round kind of guy. I'm a yep. I'm a terrible uh, home mechanic, terrible, terrible home mechanic. So. Yeah, those clip-on mudguards can be pretty fiddly to fit for someone as cat-candid as I am. Yeah. Particularly when you're trying to position the the little brushing oh yeah, thing in the yeah, bobbies yeah, yeah. that you have to stick to the frame to to give yourself a bit of clearance. I am um, was going to make fun of you for your uh, fossil-like canyon, but it was I remember you cleaned it after a winter of riding without mudguards. <laughs> that bike's looking in a lot better shape than it was. Yeah, it's quite a few fossils in my house. Okay, well, certainly lots of advantages to alloys. We've spoken about value, performance, generally speaking, practicality. Any disadvantages, Jack? Uh, I think it's much harder to create, like if going fast is your primary focus, it's much harder, if not impossible, to create as aero an alloy bike as you could in carbon. Um, again, aero won't be the most important thing to everyone, but if kind of for like for like weight, if you want it would be very, very hard to create a slippery aero bike um, in alloy. You know, it, it, for some people as well, like weight, you you can't be as competitive with weight with an alloy bike. Like you can build a, a perfectly lightweight alloy bike, but it's not going to be as light as carbon, essentially what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it, did, it did strike me that the Amanda ALR5 on the Trek spec sheet is nine kilograms, which is on the, the weightier side. I don't know how that would compare to an equivalently priced carbon bike i should say but uh, it did jump out at me that figure yeah a lot of that will be in the tire tires and wheels the frame set itself won't be wildly wildly heavy i wouldn't think um but yes like for like a alloy frame is going to be much heavier than a carbon one i would say for the majority of people that walk into a shop with three grand to spend if you've got three grand that's a lot of cash and you're probably expecting carbon 
And that wow factor is going to be hard to overcome for the poor person that's selling these bikes. Mm. I should say as well, you know, it's absolutely okay and encouraged to buy carbon because you want a carbon bike. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's a, it's nice to have nice things. And uh, <laughs> and and you know, if you do want a carbon bike and you're weighing it up against an, an aluminium bike, then yeah, by all means, go for it. Uh, any final points, Jack? Before we before we wrap up, I think if you were to be like, this is something I'd try to touch on a little bit more generally with our writing kind of um, uh, sort of environmental concern. I think alloy bikes at the end of their life, though, pretty hard to wreck one. Much easier to repair than carbon. Um, or sorry, rather, much easier to recycle than carbon. I should have said. Um, but if you are the sort of person that would like to repair a bike down the line, it is much, much harder to find specialist people who can actually repair all their bikes. Now, I should really stress, like, how many people are considering repairability when they're buying bikes? Hello. Like, well, maybe you are. Do you like to wreck bikes? <laughs> uh, wrecked one at the weekend. Uh, did well, you? Yeah, carbon frame. Oh, no. I know. But it can be repaired. It can be repaired. Well, there you go. My point is made. I thought this was a bit of a stretch, to be honest. But there you go. Alloy's a bit harder to repair. Carbon, in theory, is pretty, pretty simple to repair. Oscar Huckle, one of our digital writers, he used to work for a carbon repair place. And he was quite keen to stress, like, he is obviously very skilled to do it well. But the actual process of it isn't massively complex. So there you go. Thanks, Liam. That was very helpful. No problem. I really wish I hadn't provided, you know, the the, the content justification oh, well. for that point, but I have. Well, hopefully you can get it fixed. Yeah. It's just going to cost a little bit. Sounds like a good bike radar feature. I don't think... I've got some... I've actually got some sheet carbon and epoxy resin You're not going to... No, please, I'm please do that. Do we, need, we need your beautiful teeth for the videos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> I think the brand wouldn't like me doing that either. Let's leave it there. Thank you very much for listening. Jack, thank you for joining the podcast. Oh, sorry. I thought you were about to go into Liam. <laughs> thank you for having me, George. And I'm so sorry I questioned you on the 28 mil tires. I hope you don't reprimand me immediately after this podcast. Liam, great to have you on the podcast again. Cheers, gents. And thank you very much for listening. Please do leave us a review on your podcast provider of choice. Please do rate us. And if you've got a topic that you want us to discuss on the Bike Radar podcast, please do email podcast at bikeradar.com. We love your feedback. We love your questions. We love hearing what you want to hear about on the podcast. So do get in touch. And for now, we will speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 